Do you know the difference between Baptists and Presbyterians? What's the difference? What's the difference? No, I don't. <laughs> well, the Presbyterian will speak to you inside a liquor store. <laughs> That's the difference. <laughs> you hear about when Calvin walked into a bar one time? So see, he walks into a bar in Geneva and he orders a drink and he says, could I have a predestination, please? Make it double. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> woo woo. Welcome to Bible Theory, homie. Taking the church to the streets, homie. See what? Uh, welcome back to Bible Theory. This is a show where we cover the church ecclesiology from a reformed perspective, from every angle possible. You know, we talk to missionaries, we talk to uh, authors, theologians, professors, uh, pastors, teaching elders, deacons, you name it, anybody in the church. Season five is here. Wow. A lot of content has been going on, and I've been talking to a lot of great pastors and professors in the meantime. And, you know, I thought it would be beneficial to go ahead and talk about Presbyterianism. Yes, that presby. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about it. And we're, you know, this is a long season. We're going to be talking to a lot of different guests. It's going to be my privilege and I'm going to do my best to go ahead and drop them the best questions possible. My goal is to make an enthusiastic, present it clear, uh, clearly like it hasn't done, hasn't been done before. There's other um, resources out there. I'll go ahead and drop those resources that I think you should be aware of down below. Follow the links below and you'll see those resources down below. So go ahead and click those links. So, but before we get started, I do have my first guest here with me. And, you know, we, we do have technical difficulties, but I do have him on the phone. And he is in the corner. So if you look down below, you'll see him there. So I do have the great Dr. Dominic Aquila. How's it going down there in, uh, in the great state of Florida? Well, as we say, the free state of Florida compared to <laughs> other places, uh, it's very, it's going very well, good ministries and uh, so forth. As you know, uh, I'm still the president of New Geneva Seminary there in Colorado Springs, where you're located. Yes, right? sir. So I come up there regularly and then uh, I've engaged in a ministry through the com, which is a uh, evangelical magazine, uh, web magazine, yep. uh, the com, so people can keep up with things that are happening around uh, the various churches. I'll Drop the link below, AquilaReport.com. It's a great resource for you to get updated on not just Presbyterianism, but what's going in and what's going on around the PCA. Is that right? Is that is that just PCA well, or is that other it denominations? Covers, it's it, What we have is the full family of evangelical and reformed churches. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about that real quick. started in uh, 2008, so we've been going 15 years just to provide a service to the church to uh, be an aggregate, uh, sort of modeled a little little bit after the old Drudge Report, which has lost some of its uh, zip since Drudge left it. But mm -hmm. it, the idea was to be a gatherer of things that people just don't have time to find on the web, uh, articles of culture on the church, on individuals, on theology, uh, issues that are booming in the churches, but uh, with a more focus to the Presbyterian and Reformed uh, in the evangelical wing of the uh, broader church. Uh, this one is basically, it's a quick little joke, and, and it goes something like this. Uh, do you know the difference between Baptists and Presbyterians? No, I don't. <laughs> well, the Presbyterian will speak to you inside a liquor store. That's the difference. <laughs> 
And uh, let me go ahead and tell you this one. Um, Did you hear about when Calvin walked into a bar one time? No. Oh, man. You know, this one time Calvin walked into a bar and guess what he orders? Uh, Oh, let's see. Well, that's a good one. Um, Not sure. (laughs) He so see he walks into a bar in Geneva and he orders a drink and he says, could I have a predestination, please? Make it double. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then uh, this one real quick. If you're ever asked, so if somebody ever walks up to you when you're walking your dog or somewhere walking around the block, if someone ever asks you, hey, are you a Presbyterian? Just respond in this way, okay? Tell them, you know, the decent and orderly response is this. Let's appoint a committee and prove it. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And And then last one. You might be Presbyterian if you're able to name all 12 apostles, okay? So it's Matthew, John, James, Peter, Nathaniel, Philip, Simon, Thomas, Augustine, Knox, and Calvin. (laughs) That's right. That's right. You got to get those guys in there. (laughs) So if you can, take us to the edge of the cliff of a huge valley for us and tell us in plain, simple terms, what is Presbyterianism? Give us the forest view. Okay, good. Now, by the way, am I on frozen now? Can you see me moving? I see you moving. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay. See, you you got on my case about being frozen chosen, so I had to (laughs) freeze. Okay. Very good. All right. No, here, very simple. Uh, first of all, just the name Presbyterian, because a lot of people can't even spell it. The, the, uh, okay, it comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which means elder, rule, a rule by elder. And it actually starts out as uh, being uh, talking about someone who's elderly uh, because it goes back to the uh, Israel when they had their elders sitting at the city gate. And so they were the wise ones. They had had life experience. And so when the synagogue was established, then uh, they no longer had the temple, especially after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 586. Uh, So now the synagogue developed during that uh, exile period. And the they had synagogues, and that's where they were teaching, and they were led mm-hmm. by elders. So that elders. concept is comes over into the New Testament. By the way, the Levitical system with deacons, uh, they they served in the church. So deacons are also parts. So you have two officers in the two offices in the PCA. You have the or the Presbyterian Church. You have the elders, presbyteros, and you have the deacons, diakonos, who were like the they carried over the the work that was done uh, in the uh, temple, the day to day care of it. And the tabernacle. So, uh, so that's where it is. So, when Paul uh, was uh, and the Barnabas were doing their ministry work, for instance, it uh, they went place city to city. It did the first missionary journey. They went through the cities, got a lot of converts, but they they weren't organized yet. And so, on the way back to Antioch, they stopped and they Acts fourteen says that uh, thir- yeah fourteen is that they appointed elders or ordained elders in every city where they were to because the Presbyterian view is you don't have a church unless you have elders. So you have converts, but then it's the visible church that has organization. So the word elder and the word pastor or shepherd are synonymous terms. So the office is elder, the task is shepherding. And that gives, it comes from the word uh, in the Episcopos, where we get a word Episcopalian, which when translates, it goes through the Latin system, gives us the shepherd or the pastor, the, the carer of the sheep. So 
the ta the office's elder, the task is uh, shepherding, caring, pastoring for the people. So the system then uh, that is known as Presbyterianism is ruled by elders in the life of a church, and they're the ones who. So we don't we have a representative government as opposed to a congregational government. The Baptist and uh, Congregationalists uh, basically each church is local to itself and uh, has uh, they can have elders within it, but they are basically the congregation uh, takes votes and so forth. So okay. we are representative government. We'll yeah. go ahead and talk about little 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 differences there here soon. From, from I mean I mean from the forest point of yep. view, you have a church that is set up through Jesus Christ being the head and. He he, he he is organizing this church through through elders and deacons who are shepherding right the church yes, who right. are ruling and shepherding under Jesus the 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 converts in in their local churches and they're all connected they're not independent of one another and and they're all in unison on the beliefs of Jesus like they, they know Jesus is king they're united in this sense so it's basically a, a church that is they represent the people that's why you're saying that it's a representative yeah. form of form of church government Government. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And they, they also, they, they're the teachers. So out of that group of elders, then they are, uh, Paul gives a list of qualifications from 1 Timothy 3, for mm -hmm. instance, or also in 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Titus 1. Peter gives a list also in 1 Peter 5. And uh, basically is that they're to be core spiritual, uh, scriptural, and then it actually gives more information about their the character. They're to be uh, honorable without above reproach. That is that they don't have all the you know, we're all still sinners, but they're to have a sense of that maturity uh, so that they can uh, represent the Lord well in the world, but also over the people. So they, uh, it's a very important component of it. So it's mm -hmm. not just the pastor. So out of the elders, then there are men who will are capable or uh, gifts of uh, teaching. So out of the group of elders will come the teachers that we would call pastors or the teachers of the Bible. So go ahead and take us from the cliff and take us straight into the to the valley below and okay. see and see if you could just give us a little bit more zoomed in picture of okay. this question. Okay. What is Presbyterianism from the tree point of view? Okay, so th th what's important in it is that that each church then is not led by one person, the pastor, but by plurality of elders, and they meet together. So, for instance, you have uh, Paul in uh, Acts chapter 20. He uh, he spent most of his ministry when he was as a missionary traveling around. The city in which he spent the most time in his ministry was Ephesus. He was there for three years. Uh, the closest one to that would have been 18 months that he spent in Corinth. So, so Ephesus was an important place in his overall ministry. So he was close to the men, and he even set up a hall of Tyrannus where he was teaching mm -hmm. uh, and so forth. So uh, when he was going back to Rome, he uh, the ship was not going to come all the way to Ephesus. So he called for the elders, the plural, the mm -hmm. presbyteros, to come and meet him because they were all his friends. And he gave them a little speech that starts in about Acts uh, 20, verse 17, and goes through all, not quite the uh, end of the book, about verse uh, 34, 35. So what happens there is he gives them a speech, reminding them of what he did as an example to them, plural, in the, their plural, plural uh, association, their corporateness, to say, this is what I did, this is what you're to follow. And then he gave them an exhortation 
exhortation. And in that exhortation, he uses those two words we've just used, presbyteros and episkopos. He says, so take care of you, watch over yourselves. He already had called them elders. And also take care of and provide oversight for the sheep over whom the Lord has made you an overseer. There's your word that you are called that. So the pastor by himself does not rule. Part of a body that meets together. So your little joke at the beginning, if you're a Presbyterian, that's because you set up committees. That's part of it. Uh, <laughs> but it also comes out of the proverb that says, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So mm-hmm. we, we don't uh, just have one person. Now, the person who's going to have the big face or known is going to be the main preacher for, for that. But he doesn't rule in the life of the church. And to use the human term, the church is owned, the local church is owned by the elders, the elder board, take together as in terms of all the ministry tasks that take place. So I think that's an important thing because in many other types of churches, the uh, rule sometimes is just one man and that creates a real problem when you have that. So Presbyterians do recognize that is a principle that is very important. It's buried deeply and grounded deeply in the uh, scriptures. So that's one thing. You know, of course, theology is important. We, you know, Presbyterians tend to, you know, on the scale of education, tend to be the educated lot, you know, in terms of our American culture anyway, uh, very much uh, middle class, upper middle class. And so one of the jokes that I have is with among my brothers is that we Presbyterians don't do storefront well because that's not who we're dealing with. So we try and find uh, nicer places that I think we should be able to do that. And we do have churches that start in storefronts. That's fine. But that is not our common practice. Just again, of the education uh, for a man to be called as an elder, especially if he's going to be the pastor teacher role, there's a heavy requirement, educational requirement where typically it's at least a bachelor's degree and then and then a, a master of divinity degree from some approved seminary. So by the time you're, you graduate from all that, you know, you can, you're spending uh, seven, eight, nine years, depending on how long it takes you to get through the seminary part. You know, you're you're chuck full with all this information, and hopefully you're going to be able to communicate it right. in a clear way to people in the church. But it's a very, it does have a high threshold for ordination in terms of requirements um, to be, uh, you know, be ordained uh, in the in the Presbyterian Church. But also, but we're very theological. That's the, one of the reasons why, in one sense, we our church battles tend to be theologically based. Okay. Now there are relational issues as well, but we get down into that minutiae. You know, you talked about the uh, the double and the single predestination <laughs> or so forth. Yeah, and you can get. get Get carried away if you're not careful in the minutia which you have to be careful so we're always having to remind ourselves not everybody's at that same place so make sure we're doing our job of discipleship to bring people along you know don't make a federal case out of every single little jot and tittle let me just process everything you just said because i'm trying to learn and i'm and I'm, I'm presenting this case for people who are watching so they could be encouraged and strengthened go ahead and hit that like button if you are encouraged <laughs> and go ahead and share this with your friends who are on the fence or considering Presbyterianism, or perhaps they're Presbyterians and need to be encouraged, or perhaps they just need to get a little bit more info to make up their mind. Uh, maybe your Baptist friends are, are considering Presbyterianism. So whatever the case, uh, this is an encouragement for 
all those people out there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let me back it up. So yes, churches are ruled by elders, a plurality of elders. You cannot have churches without these elders and you need deacons as well, it seems like. And you have one person designated who is appointed, well-educated, well-trained, well-vetted, well-elected among the elders to be the quote-unquote face man uh, of the local church per, um, per se, even though he's not the like the head honcho, uh, because the head honcho model is what you guys are, what Presbyterianism is not, right? The head honcho model. That's what I just named it. <laughs> Because what you're talking about is like the like system, like an operation right. here. Like if it's well oiled, then you you could push the gas and you, you could just like haul it. Damn, that guy's fast, right? Exactly. If it's if it's a well oiled machine, exactly. right? If you're talking about an SS Camaro, then let's go. What is some of the beneficial things that we get? Well, one of the things is you do get it is vision because we do take the time to consider things in the church. Now, in the Presbyterian system, what we tend to call the body of elders, we call it a session. A session. Okay. Let me just say that that mainly comes because Presbyterianism grew out of the what took place on the British Isles, so uh, London, but especially Scotland. So we go back to the Scotland days with John Knox and sure the uh, Knox Chicano uh, that you're holding up to. Uh, so we depend a lot on him as the father of, pre of Presbyterianism. However, on the continent of Europe, since that's where the Reformation was happening, the people who were Presbyterian in terms of their church government took the name Reformed. There you have like the Christian Reform, you have which are Dutch. You have the Reformed Church that comes out of uh, uh, Switzerland and and Germany. So you have German Reformed, you have Swiss Reformed, you have all these various uh, bodies of Reformed churches. But they're in their government, their practice, they are Presbyterian. They have the rule by elders you know, on that. So I just want you to know that the word uh, Reformed is theological. The word Presbyterian is more polity or government. Okay. 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 So the efficiency is, or the best thing is, or that I count, is that we do take time to look at things through a theological grid. We saying, what does the scripture say? And let me just make one more uh, broader comment, just that it, it came to me a, a few minutes ago. And that is that when people hear the word Presbyterian, they may think that all Presbyterians are theologically liberal. The largest church, at least in America, the last Presbyterian church is called the Presbyterian Church in the USA. And so the Presbyterian Church USA is more of a liberal denomination which questions the doctrine of Scripture and its sufficiency and a number of other fundamental doctrines of the Church, which is why there are smaller denominations that have the word Presbyterian or Reformed, which are in that category of saying that they hold to a theological system that is highlighted or comes from and influenced by the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. And I'll, we'll come back to that. I just wanted to say, realize that there, there's a broadness in the history okay. of what Presbyterians do theologically. The efficiency is this. When, by working together and the plurality of elders, it helps the, to stay on, on target, to make sure that ministry is flowing right, that the people of God are cared for, because the ruling elders, the lay elders working with the pastoral elders, want them to 
work with the people of God, shepherd them, you know, so hospital visitation or you have questions of counseling, any of the elders can are, are to be qualified enough to be able to have the, that kind of conversation and open up the scriptures and help people who are wrestling with uh, theological or personal issues, emotional issues, and that it's, or family issues. And so we that's part of the beauty of the plurality, that it doesn't have to just be one person that does everything together. So I think that's one of the uh, benefits, uh, holding ourselves accountable. Maybe one other is this. Not only is there the local church, but Presbyterianism by design is connectional. By that, it means that it gathers in a regional area, like uh, the uh, geographical area, uh, counties or multiple counties, and it okay. forms then what is called a presbytery. And okay. a presbytery is like a regional church where churches work in concert to not only establish churches, start churches, but also to maintain a good integrity of the ministry of the church as well as theology. Then, So, so, you, so you have the session as a local. Local, and then the presbytery. presbytery is the regional. That's and then right. Then the big one, uh, the national one is called the General Assembly. The General Assembly is the national. Okay, That's three right. different levels. Got it. But three different levels. It's graded courts. And, and the connectionalism means that we cooperate together. We have ministry. So at those levels, so at the local ministry, we are cooperating, of course, internally. Okay. At the regional level, okay. but, you know, church planting, especially because we're more attuned to what's taking place. Each geographical area is different. Uh, so we want to make sure we're uh, contextualizing the gospel. And then the national is, that's where we can do cooperatively, our uh, world missions, uh, our large picture church planting, our Christian education. We can work together to uh, set up structures for you know, retirement for, you know, uh, church workers, foundations, and so forth. That would colleges, seminaries, and those kinds of things that we can, we need the, the larger group to associate with that. Yeah. So it seems like there's more to meet the eye when it comes to Presbyterianism. Okay. So you have the local session, which are the elders, and then you're, you're, you're accountable to them. They're, they are your local authority. They're shepherding you. They're one of the, the, the task is to shepherd you yes. and to, and to counsel you and stuff like that help you and build you up in the faith. And then whenever it seems like they have a, a like you said, a connection with um, other elders and other churches. And when they get together, it's called uh, a presbytery in a, in a local uh, geographical region. And then when the, everybody gets together on the national lev level, that's the larger connectivity that these large body of elders is called the uh, general assembly. That seems like it's a little bit larger than your like, typical church head honcho model. Right. Well, the connectionalism really ties us together, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is important. So it's you you have the freedom at the local level to do your ministry, mm -hmm. but you're doing it knowing that you're part of this larger organization that has a specific uh, theological persuasion on, based on the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism mm -hmm. so that we're unified in that theme theologically so that wherever you go, so if you're traveling around the country, you're moving, uh, you can say, I'm going to look for a Presbyterian brand because I'm going to find the same thing I had in Minnesota that I have in Florida or California. There may be some, you know, internal style differences, but in terms of the integrity of the ministry, it's going to be the same because we hold ourselves accountable uh, to uh, those things that are important. Yeah. So you, what you're saying is you find a consistency presentation of elders and church 
Christianity in, in Minnesota as you would in Florida. Right. And then and it's, they'll do it. Okay. It's unity, not uniformity. In other words, we're not saying everyone's in uh, immediate step because sometimes you'll have different worship practices. The, uh -huh. But the principle, for instance, just a taking worship, for instance, is that the orderliness of Presbyterians, the decency and order part of us, is that we are following what is ordinarily historically called the regulative principle of worship. Regulative. The word regulation sounds a little you know, real stiff and all. Right. But what it is is that we are committed to the scripture as the word of God and that we are going to worship in the manner and the pattern by, that God commands, as opposed to what is sometimes called the normative principle that if it isn't forbidden in scripture, we can do it. Right. So bring in the elephants, bring in the whatever you yeah. <laughs> uh maybe that's a little extreme, but yes. Right, right. <laughs> the normative principle, God had nothing forbidden about it, uh, so we can do it, but we're saying, you know, what does God command? And that's based, we're very much based on uh, the application of the second commandment of the mm -hmm. Ten Commandments, where he says, you do not uh, uh, make unto you any images, uh, brazen images, and worship them. The principle there is not just worrying about images, okay? That mm -hmm. It's talking about the whole God commands how he desires and wants to worship, and the scripture lays that out, those principles out. Now, he doesn't give an order of worship, but he does give a certain principle. That, that guide us. So that becomes another part that's in, important mm -hmm. to Presbyterians is the regulative principle that flows out of this high view that we're there to make sure that God is honored and it's not a just a humanly driven, the church is not a humanly driven outfit. It's made up of human beings who need to hear, you know, the good gospel, the need to trust Christ, but uh, in a way that honors his character, his qualities, lifts them up. So let me see if I could uh, process maybe your process in this, if you guys are watching, and I would love to know your comments below. Go ahead and drop a comment. Let me know how you're processing this, what kind of questions you have, drop them down below. The benefits for me as a church member as or what a, what could attract me if I'm looking at Presbyterianism from a third party, right? It offers me like multi-level protections, right? Or like mm -hmm. against head honcho type model where you got a one person rule, one person dominance. And, and there seems to be like there's checks, right? There's checks and balances is basically what you're trying to say. One ring will never rule them all. <laughs> right. Yeah, it can happen at times if you're not careful, but that the principle is is what you just said. Yes. Right. So the principle is one ring will never rule them all. That's right. like it, it's it's like it's a system built to make sure that doesn't necessarily happen in principle. Now that seems assuring, like okay, cool. Now, another thing you're saying is that it takes time, mm -hmm. like like molasses. It, it takes time. Good things take time, baby. You know what I mean? Right. Crock pot, man. Slow. Have you ever smoked anything? It takes hours upon hours to get that hickory flavor, man. You know what I mean? You can't just smoke something within an hour and then expect it to be awesome. Another thing is that it, it, it makes me feel like I have a like I have access to a huge cloud of counselors. As as a person looking at Presbyterianism, I have access to like a huge cloud of smart people. <laughs> And I could ask them something and maybe I could get 20 different answers, but 20 great answers. Instead right. of just one answer, I could get 20 great answers. Because of our studiousness, I guess. We're avid readers. Uh, we interact with uh, the history, the full spectrum of the church, not just from the Reformation. But the Reformation is important because it rediscovered the mm -hmm. principles there. So, mm -hmm. I mean, we count Augustine as... Uh, 
one of our main things. In fact, you already mentioned him in the sort of in the joke. But uh, if you would have asked, you know, uh, uh, Calvin and Luther, you know, if you're Calvinist, you're following you're following Cal, you know, Calvin's follow Calvin, Lutheran's follow Luther. If you would ask these two men who have now their names attached to people following them, who are you? What, how would they define themselves then? Be, uh, because the word Calvinist or Lutheranist were not being used at that point. They would say they were Augustinian because both of them depended on the construct and the principles that Augustine taught. Of all the early church fathers, he probably was the most prominent with reference to some of the main themes that came out of the uh, Reformation and articulated them really well. By the way, one other reason for this connectivity is the teaching that we have on the uh, doctrine of the covenant. Covenant theology is the essence, if you would, theologically, of what carries the work through the confession of faith and the catechisms and our theological structure. And that is that God created us. He entered into a unique relationship, which the Bible calls a covenant. Uh, when it was broken in Adam's sin, that God came back again and created, not the first one was the covenant of works, followed up then when that failed because of Adam's sin, covenant of grace, which has various administration, which takes us through the Old Testament and brings it to the fullness in the person of Christ. So you have uh, Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, but all of those are part of the covenantal system. They're all connected together that find their fullness and connectedness in Christ. So the covenant uh, system is a unified structure, which when, uh, because of some I know some Baptists are out there and saying, wait a minute, don't you baptize babies and they don't believe in Jesus. Jesus yet, and so forth. So, well, if you understand the doctrine of the covenant, then you understand why children are included in the part of the church, membership of the church, as non-commuting members is because of how God structured things, even in the old covenant, starting with Abraham when he told his, uh, he was told to circumcise the male children eight year, eight days old and when they came, and that that was a sign of the covenant. So we see baptism as the continuation of that, of which circumcision was a symbol or type, uh, the baptism continues. And so if you're looking at baptism only as a sign that you have said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you be baptized, then, which is a true statement out of the uh, Old New Testament, uh, then you miss the covenantal structure that gives help in interpreting Scripture throughout the Old Testament as we look at it now. So just so that we're saying that we're not just following an old practice, sometimes we're accused of all the Roman Catholics, you know, have, well, they call it christening, uh, baptism but christening. Ours is not a christening. It's a, a recognition that there is a covenant structure that God has entered into a relationship with his people. He's going to be faithful to that covenant. Christ is the ultimate covenant so that when he uh, died, remember he held up the cup in the when he gave the Lord's Supper, this is, cup is the covenant, new, the blood of the new covenant. There was an old covenant, which was found throughout the Old Testament, that has been seamlessly tied to the new covenant, but finds its complete completion in that new. So that's a very strong internal a covenantal structure that guides a lot of the other theological systems and concepts. And the practice within the, um, our practices of the, within the church and how we understand the sacraments and that they are signs signifying Christ and his love for us through the covenant. Let me see if I could uh, summarize some of the benefits here. The church is larger than me because of the connection that it has to his local 
local, regional, and national body. It's multi-level protection for me and the church within the church. And in the local, regional, national body, there's multi-level protection. One of the benefits is deep diving theology, right? It's not just shallow or not just Calvinistic. It's, it's deep diving theology, covenant. It's historical. Presbyterianism offers you a bigger, deeper historical connection to the church, to people like Augustine, to people like Calvin and Luther and stuff like that. So, and it includes children. So we are whole family Christians, not just part of the family type Christians, we're whole family Christians. Presbyterians, like many believers, include children. We do include the children in the church, in the local visible church. And we do that when the child is born in Christian families, we baptize them. We see them. We go ahead and That's acknowledge right. them immediately that these people who are having babies in the church, um, and if they're Christians, obviously, then they're having kids. Their kids are godly seed and we include them in the church. So those are some of the exactly. benefits that I'm just yeah. listing here that I'm taking notes on. Hopefully you guys are taking notes. Where do we see this after the Reformation or during the Reformation or even before the Reformation? Okay. Where do we see this on a historical level? Because you mentioned Augustine. Yeah, Augustine right? was uh, definitely, you know, understood this covenantal uh, structure, but okay. it becomes uh, in the history of the church, while it was always present, it does find its uh, sort of fruit and um, awareness in the Reformation, mainly coming out of the Reformed side of things. Calvin, of course, develops it. You had a, a follower of Luther, actually. Melanchthon, who was sort of one of his primary disciples, who when after um, Luther died in 1546, moved away from Lutheranism and was really helped to found the German Reformed uh, movement and, and church, and he held to it. The generations that followed after Calvin developed it even more, the concept, because it was always understood, but now it was being developed theologically, it was expressed more, it was written about. Where you see it, you know, the, on the various creeds and confessions. So if anything the Presbyterians do, they like to make creeds and confessions where you have, for instance, uh, the early on, the Belgic, I mean, uh, yeah, the, the Belgic Confession is, is, is good, it's uh, French. Uh, you have the, the Helvetic, which is the Swiss uh, Reformation uh, document, which expresses that. But where it finds sort of its epitome is in the Westminster, which I've referred to, which was written over about a five-year period, not constantly, but they were not always meeting, but uh, working hard. In uh, Westminster, Abbey in London, and the brightest minds and the best theologians of the day came together to put together, by the way, these guys were smart and they knew their history, they were Renaissance men, they were intellectuals, but they knew the scriptures, they knew their history and theology, so they sort of gathered it all together, which is one reason why the Westminster Confession and Catechisms are such uh, an important documents, covers this whole system of, of covenant theology and of God's redemptive grace in a wonderful uh, way, but it was first recognized as uh, 1643 to 1648. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, but the first group uh, that really adopted it as theirs was the John under uh, Knox under, I mean, the, not under Knox, uh, being the uh, the Scottish church. And that's the reason why as Presbyterianism had developed strongly there, that as Presbyterians from Scotland were doing their mission work, and they were prolific about doing mission work, so they went not only to here to the Americas, but uh, to Africa, to Asia, to Latin America, they brought with them the Confession of Faith and the Catechisms, and they brought that Presbyterian orderliness, structure,
structure that flows out of the, the doctrine of the covenant to uh, many places. So it sort of binds uh, us together. So you see that. In the, and the other thing it brings out is, a let's say, the director for worship based on the regulative principle. You have the principles are laid out. So here are the things you do. There's no one order that's given, but it's uh, the principles there for worship. It also gives order for families and how they can have family worship, gives direction to churches about how they do uh, discipleship and Christian education. As a result, uh, many of the schools that exist today, colleges have a history, uh, their historical background are Presbyterian. You think of Princeton, for instance, was started as what was known as the log cabin, eventually became, and it started in a little town uh, outside of Philadelphia called Neshaminy, Pennsylvania, moved across Delaware River into New Jersey, eventually became the College of New Jersey, and then it morphed into the um, College in Princeton Seminary because it was founded in Princeton. So you you have the, and there are many other colleges and schools that we can name like that. There's a commitment to carrying on not only a, a b- robust view of theology and a real uh, family-centered of uh, the covenant uh, theology, but also encouraging people to recognize the just the splendor of the God who gives knowledge to his people through the word so that we can set out our doctrinal principles in a way that will guide life. So it's not just to be theologically, not just so we can have arguments about predestination of the like. No, we want it to be something that ministers to the heart. So I like to summarize with theology is onto life. That is, it's it's not standalone just so that you have, uh, you can argue about words, but it actually gives concrete direction, wisdom about how to live life. So it's a, it's working all that out from the scripture itself into um, into the life. Christian mm-hmm. schools, schools, you know, the family uh, encouraging, mm-hmm. teaching, training uh, parents to have family times around uh, the scriptures and, you know, suggest ways done. So of course, Sunday school uh, in the churches, as well as, you know, Christian education on the college and uh, seminary level. In your perspective, that from a professional perspective, what are some of the negatives you think about mm-hmm. such a good system? Because it sounds so good, yeah. but there's well, got to be weaknesses. Yeah. As we're trying to work it out, the, the system may be that uh, there can be, we forget the primary purpose. And if we forget the primary purpose, then we, you know, as they say in the colloquial language, we emphasize the sizzle, no longer the state. Uh, no, we got to remember the main thing is the main thing, which is, that goes back to the question one of the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So that is, you know, something almost like John 3, 16. A lot of people know it. They don't usually know where it comes from. But the focus right out of the chute is what does it mean to glorify God. And that cannot be a cool, indifferent, uh, intellectual process. It's got to be something that is stirs the mind as well as the heart, or as uh, Calvin liked to put it, putting the combination of head, heart, hand. In other words, you have the head is where the mental processing get the structure in place, the heart where it's passionately felt and understood, the hands where it serves. So those three comes out. In fact, one of the logos or uh, pictures of uh, 
Calvin that uh, has come down to us through the ages is a cupped hand with a flame over the cupped hand. And it says, my heart, I present you now, Lord, promptly and sincerely. So the heart sort of captures the, the power and the essence of it and gives the power uh, for it. By the way, another thing that comes out of it is some of the great, most exciting uh, times of the church history is when you have some kind of revival or reformation that takes place. In the seven, early 1700s, in this country as well as in England and uh, Scotland, there was what we call the Great Awakening. It was driven by the uh, Calvinist theology of the of uh, Westminster and so forth. But Jonathan Edwards was a part of that. He, he was up in New England as a congregationalist. So somewhere from about 1725 to about 1750, there was a generation or two that forgot the heart and the hand side. They they had the mind, the, the head part was all set and you know secure, uh, but they forgot the the other two. So now here come some preachers who realized recaptured it. They started preaching, and so in the church we started having people getting converted who were Presbyterian and or Reformed, coming from the continent side, uh, who all of a sudden realized they knew a lot, but they didn't know Jesus personally, and they came to faith and the. The, it just inflamed what we call a, a great awakening, and it had a great impact in the uh, early days of, while we were still, uh, the United States anyway, we were still a colonial part of the uh, British Empire, and it also had impact in uh, England and Scotland and other parts of the world. There's uh, an evangelistic component. We believe very strongly that the uh, doing all things to the glory of God means that you're going to worship with a great sense of, ver of uh, power, a real sense of God's presence. You're going to fellowship in a fiery, in incendiary, that is a, a hot a fire, a, a importance of uh, gathering the people. And we're going, we believe that God opens hearts so that we can go and do evangelism with great confidence. And evangelism that says God will bring in his elect and he uses us as the instruments by which he does that. And so we can with great confidence share the good news, trusting that God will open hearts to respond. And that gives us a great deal of, of uh, you know, passion and desire to share with everyone because it's God's business who the elect are. Our business is just to be faithful to the Great Commission. And so that drives a great deal of our uh, ministry as well. What are some of the myths about Presbyterians that you have heard in your ministry career? If you could name, you know, the top yeah. five, the top three. <laughs> well, one of them we, we've already hinted at them is one is that we look that we are only concerned about uh, theological precision. That's it. Uh, we want to get it right, not do the right thing, but just get it right. You know, sometimes myths mm. are because there's some there's some reality. There's some reality. That, to that, yes. What I like to say is this way. Whenever you overplay a strength, it becomes a weakness or becomes part of that myth. Okay. So where are we strong? We're strong because we take the theology seriously and we want to be precise and careful. Mm -hmm. And then if you overplay that to the point where you sort of knit pick and so forth, that's no good. And that's where a strength then becomes a weakness. Where you have a view that God is, we believe very strongly that uh, God does choose from the fourth, before the foundation of the world, those who would be saved. So the elect, we don't know who they are, but sometimes we can get cocky and say, well, if uh, God is so sovereign, we overplay the sovereignty of God, then we don't have to do much. Uh, God will bring in the elect without us. No, he has chosen to use us. And anyone who says that is violating a 
very significant uh, principle of uh, Presbyterianism writ large and understood. So that's another one. Uh, the idea is where do we get the idea that we're the frozen chosen? Uh, the frozen part means that, well, maybe we've, uh, you know, we're comfortable in our middle class things. And if that's the case, that's unfortunate that we don't show and demonstrate outwardly uh, the love of Christ to other people, either among ourselves or in the greater uh, culture or the rest of the church. That is also a, a fault that can happen where you overplay a good principle and you don't use it to uh, to its, its advantage. And that really is not a healthy thing at all. We're not the frozen chosen. That's the myth. Uh, we don't evangelize because that's the frozen chosen. We don't like to evangelize. That we don't raise our hands in church. Right. That all we do is argue and study too much. That's right. So those are myths. You know, those are myths. The, the longer you hang out with Presbyterians, the, the more Presbyterian churches that you go to, you will see that's largely just a myth. Maybe that's true in some Presbyterian churches, but I don't think that's the reality of overall the whole, the whole, the whole system there. So real quick, uh, Dr. Aquella, what are some of your closing thoughts, closing closing arguments about this introduction for, for the hidden gem of Christianity, which I think is Presbyterianism? Uh, friends, what writings have stood the test of time overall? When uh, somebody is uh, really getting in trouble or has a theological question, they they tend to run to Presbyterians. You think about some of the names today, you know, think of R.C. Sproul, uh, you think of, well, John, going back to John Cal Calvin himself. When you want something that has substance, you're going to look for someone who has written something and or has spoken and preached something that has substance and, and variety and power to it and strength. In other words, we're not going to get caught up in simplistic comments. We're not going to talk about your feelings first. We're going to really always say, what does God say? And that is a very important. So if we start with God said it, we need to believe that. And then that means that we always, we're constantly refining and or honing down on why it's important that you always start with scripture. You don't start with feelings. You don't start with individuals. You don't start with culture. Uh, what was the first question that was asked in the Bible? It was Satan asking the, the, the woman, did God really say? Okay, God spoke. He said something. He said, let there be light, you know, and went through and created all of creation. And, and then he challenges that. And the woman, fortunately, responded well until the very end is she said, well, he's because Satan and said, did God really say you can't uh, eat or touch anything? Oh, no, eat from any of the trees in the garden. He said, no, no, no. What God said was you can't eat of that particular tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And she then added, and you can't touch it. That's where she went wrong. That's where we have to be always be careful. God said, well, don't eat of that particular tree. He didn't say you could have uh, built a, a, a tree house in it. You could put a swing on the limb and uh, swing on it. You just couldn't eat the fruit. And uh, Satan is always challenging the authority of God his veracity. That's what he did with Jesus when he, his temptations in Matthew 4. He, uh, he, he questioned uh, whether or not, you are, if you really are the Son of God, how did Jesus answer? He always went back to the authority, the grounding, where we all have. So if there's anything that we stand on, it's the authority of Scripture, it's sufficient
efficiency, clarity, and that if we really study it, head, heart, hands, we will find some, you know, real substance in life. We will find security, not in ourselves, not in little cute quips and quotes, but in God himself, because it's all to the glory of God. And with that, let's go ahead and end it right here. Thank you so much for tuning in to Bible Theory Season 5, Episode 1. Go ahead and do me a favor. Click that subscribe button now and hit the like button. Don't forget to share this with your friends and your families and pastors as well. Uh, this is a great season. It's going to be about Presbyterianism. Come back. You're going to want to not miss this. You, I wouldn't want to miss it. Don't miss this. And we're going to look at it from a lot of different angles. And we're going to bring on special people on here who are way knowledgeable, way more qualified, and way more known than me to explain it better than I can ever do it. So you don't want to miss it with the season five. Go ahead and catch me on the next episode. Grace and peace. <laughs>